Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hello again, friends, and welcome on into episode 37 of the SCO Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the great folks at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield. Happy to be back with you on today, Thursday, November 7th, 2019. Bit of a break this week, a little bit lighter with the shows because it's bye week after all. It's time for everybody to recharge the batteries, not just the Patriots, but the hosts of the Pat Pulpit Podcast Network, of course. But we've got a great show for you today. We're going to do quality time with you, the listener. I put out the clarion call for some questions, and I got a couple of good ones, and I'm excited to dive into those. Also, I'm going to try to make you feel better as best I can in the first part of the show. I'm going to try to put you at ease a bit, perhaps, about the offense. But before we do that, your usual cavalcade of reminders. Please do follow along with the work at places like Inside the Pylon, Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, Pro Football Weekly, and of course, that trio of SB Nation websites, Big Blue View, yes, here, Pat's Pulpit, and of course, Bleeding Green Nation. And why, why, dear listener, did I mention Bleeding Green Nation last? Well, because you know what's coming next week. That's right. Eagles, Patriots. So you know we're going to do it upright both here and at the QB Sco Show, which I host over at Bleeding Green Radio. Now let's do this. I could tell, and it's not just some sort of podcast sixth sense. I could see it in your takes on the Sco Show Slack channel and the takes on Twitter and elsewhere that people are a bit angsty, a bit angsty about where the Patriots sit on their bye week. And it's interesting because I put out the call for questions for today's show. And I got a fascinating cartoon from Dr. McClude Cartoons at M-A-C-L-T-O-O-N-S on Twitter who responded, I don't have a question, so I just drew a picture. And the picture was of two different Patriots fans and it was basically like two headings. Over the first one, the heading read, if you told us the Pats would be 8-1 on November 4th. And you had Patriots fan under that with a caption, little thought bubble. That would be so freaking awesome. And then over the second Patriots fan, the header reads, us when the Pats are actually 8-1 and on November 4th. And then you have the Patriots fan saying, we stink, the offense is overrated, the defense sucks, Brady's over the hill, Belichick's lost it, we can't win without Antonio Brown, I told you we'd be awful without Gronk, etc., etc., etc. And that's pretty much exactly where we are right now as a fan base. We're starting to panic. 
And the panic makes some sense because you just had a bad loss. It was a game that was, by any stretch, your toughest test to date, and it seems that you failed it as a franchise, as a team. And now you get the stretch run where things are going to get a lot tougher. You've got the bye, then you've got the Eagles who are also coming off of a bye. You've got Dallas at home. You go to Houston. Then you get the Chiefs. That's, this is the stretch that's going to decide the fate of this team. Whether it's a plan on wildcard weekend kind of team. Whether it's a wildcard kind of team. Because let's not lose sight of the fact that Buffalo isn't lurking too far behind in the rearview mirror. And so this stretch run is going to be critical. And so I thought it would be important to try and put you at ease today. And this, what I'm going to talk about, you can also see on Pat's pulpit, there will be a piece that's going up. And I looked at just three plays in a row, just three plays. And they give me hope about the offense in the second half of the season. And they come after the Edelman fumble. We remember the Edelman fumble, just an awful, awful turn of events for the New England Patriots. But New England needed to put a drive together again. They needed to find a way to get back into the end zone. And they were able to do that. And there were the plays that sort of stood out to me are plays that stood out for a number of different reasons. Whether it was execution from skilled players, offensive linemen, be schematic designs, concepts. They stood out to me, and this is why they stood out to me. We hear so many like nuggets or catchphrases about the Patriots. They take away what you do best. They make you fight with one arm behind your back. Like all the f- do your job, next man up. All, all the sort of catchphrases and bits of sports lingo that have been associated over this team. We hear them all the time. And one that we always hear, and one that Belichick himself preaches, is that he wants his teams to be playing their best football in December and January, and hopefully beyond. And part and parcel with that is the idea that you use September and October and bits of November to figure out what it is you do well, figure out your identity as a team, and then that's what you rely on down the stretch. We saw that last year with sort of their 21 personnel look on offense. And even though in terms of, say, EPA and things like that, success rate, maybe their 21 personnel package wasn't the most explosive or wasn't the most successful or didn't help them more than perception of it, that was their identity. And they've been struggling to find an offensive identity, I think, over the course of the season. I think most people would agree with that. And that's why... Their no-huddle, up-tempo approach from the second quarter into the third quarter and a little bit beyond might be it. And I, again, wanted to highlight three plays. And they sort of begin, like I said, after the Edelman fumble. Patriots have a first and 10 on their own 37. It's not the first play of this drive. They had already picked up a first down thanks to back-to-back Burkhead runs. So they face a first and 10 at the New England 37. Brady lines up on our center. They're in a two-by-two formation. Watson and Sanu on the right in sort of a pro alignment, tight end on the line. Watson has, I mean, Sanu, excuse me, as a flanker. Then slot to the left. Dorsett outside, Edelman in the slot. Burkhead is a single back. Brady under center. 
And he starts calling out the signals and he points out the mic and does all the sort of pre-snap Tom Brady stuff that we're used to seeing. And then he sort of stops, points to the sky a bit and sort of makes like a, looks like almost a roof, a pointed roof with his hands. Somebody can call it something else. But he's like putting his hands together, his fingertips together inside of a triangle. And he's clearly making some kind of adjustment. And it's not clear exactly what he's doing, whether he's changing the protection or changing the play. But he sees something and it makes him want to do something different offensively. And the play they end up running is sort of a dual half-field read. To the slot formation side, they run D-slant, which is a slant-flat concept in their playbook. Dorsett on the three-step, then slant. Edelman on the route to the flat, out of the slot. On the pro side with Watson and Sanu, they run what looks to be hook. Watson runs the hook route, which is kind of like a stick route. He can either curl or break to the outside. Here he's going to break to the outside because they have man more on that in the second. And Sanu just runs an out pattern. And they catch the Ravens in zero blitz. Baltimore's bringing pressure here. So my educated guess, which is worth next to nothing, is that he's adjusting protection because they go to a six-man protection scheme here. Burkhead, it's a quick game concept. Burkhead has no route responsibilities. He's just helping in protection on the inside. And Brady's able to have time, get the ball out on time in rhythm. He hits Sanu, who's working an out route against a defender with inside leverage against him. And he's able to turn up field and pick up the first down. Now, what really stands out to me watching this play are the tackles. Newhouse and Cannon. Why? The last thing you want to see on a three-step concept, even against zero blitz, is the quarterback get hit or the ball get tipped at the line of scrimmage. Because defensive linemen, defenders are topped. If it's three-step drop, you see that quarterback three-step hitch up, get your hands up. Now, there's only one true way to prevent that as an offensive lineman. You got to get them to use your hands and you got to try to get them to the ground. So if you watch the end zone angle of this play, both Newhouse and Cannon have defensive backs blitzing off the edge. And both of them go to the ground with a cut block. And in response, the defenders they're trying to block have to use their hands to try to avoid it. And that gives Brady the window to get the ball out. And when you watch this play, whether it's on your own or in the article, you know, pay particular attention to Newhouse. I love what he does here. We've given him a ton of stick, and deservedly so, for some of the protection problems. But here, he's got a guy blitzing into the B gap on his right, and then on the outside through the C gap from the edge. And he does a tremendous job when the ball is snapped, of firing out his right arm to try to get the shoulder of Joe Tooney, the left guard, to make sure that they're going to pick up that inside guy. You want to protect inside out, particularly with Tom Brady. And then he's able, in a very athletic move for a guy this size, to dive and get that cut attempt on the edge blitzer. Cannon, for his part, Maybe not as graceful because he kind of, let's just say, he kind of whiffs, but the job gets done. He dives at the defender, 
tries the cut block, forces the defender to sort of adjust his path, put his hands down. And as Brady's going through the throw in motion, that defender's arms are below his waist. And he's potentially in the line, that throw in lane between Brady and Sanu. And so the tackle's there, very impressive play. So that was the first play. The very next play, they go again, up tempo, no huddle. They line up in the same exact formation because one of the ways to really get back to the line of scrimmage is keep everybody the same. Run the routes to the same side of the field, keep everything the same. This time, they're going to use play action. To the slot formation side, they run peel, post and wheel, door set on a post route, Edelman out of the slot, wheel route, bend to the sideline, and then get vertical. Backside, well, front side, I guess. Watson runs a crossing route, Sanu on a deep curl route. Now, Baltimore just basically spot drops into cover three here. Sort of a three-buzz look where they bring one of the safeties down. They show Brady two high safeties at the snap, but they run sort of straight cover three. But they're able to get this ball to Watson on the crosser, working against the middle linebacker sort of in space. And the way they're able to do it is by the play-action movement, the design. And one of the things that I sometimes bat on when it comes to the Patriots and how they conceptualize pass protection on play action plays because they pull Joe Tooney, the left guard to the right edge. And part of the reason you do that is to mess with that linebacker because he's reading interior alignment. And when he sees Karras and Shaq Mason in tandem blocked to the left and Joe Tooney pull, He's thinking this is some sort of, you know, power, gap, power, counter perhaps to the right side of the offense, to the linebacker's left. And all it takes is that linebacker taking two steps down in response to run. And as he's doing that, Watson is getting behind him. And so as Brady comes out of the fake and sets up in the pocket, he sees the linebacker two steps down to the line of scrimmage and Watson already starting to get behind him. He's already got the depth behind him. Now he's going to angle past him. The play's over. Like There's no way this linebacker is going to be able to retreat and recover and get under this crossing route from Watson. And the play is over. Simple throw, easy read and catch. And the Patriots have another first down. And what's interesting about this play is it's another example. And Collinsworth, to his credit, Collinsworth is, say what you want about him, very good on the broadcast. To his credit, Collinsworth pointed out that the Patriots haven't been successful running the ball this year, but they're going to keep doing it, you know, because they feel like it helps to play action. But study after study has shown that you don't need to be an effective running team for play action passes to work. Why? Because think about it. I talk often about the quarterback position and muscle memory and the fact that, look, if you've been playing the position since you were nine years old, you face something, you're going to respond to it the way you've been doing it for the past 10 years of your life. It's the same for linebackers. If you've been taught at such a young age that you see pull, you see hats up, any of that stuff you're reading inside, that it's run, it's hard to make that go away. 
And so, yeah, you don't need to have a successful running game to work on play action. And so that's sort of the thing that I'm sort of getting at here. This insistence sometimes to sort of run the ball and get the run game going, you don't need it as much as you might think. And then the very next play, White's in the game, and they do run the ball. And the push that they get up front is extremely impressive. And now they're lucky in a sense. They run zone, simple outside zone to the left side. It's first and 10, the Baltimore 34-yard line. It's at the 10-35 mark of the third quarter. And they get a post-snap bubble to attack. It's for two reasons that this happens. First, Watson aligns in a win pre-snap just outside Newhouse on the left. But he comes in motion. And so Baltimore has a sub-package in the game. They've got a linebacker, and they've got a defensive back aligned as a linebacker. Chuck Clark, number 36, is that defensive back. And... When Watson comes in motion, he changes the run strength of the formation. And so when initially Watson is aligned on the left side of the Patriots offense, that's where the linebacker is aligned. Patrick Wansor, number 48. And when Watson comes in motion and crosses the formation, he changes the run strength of the offense. And so the defense responds and they want to have their linebacker to the strength of the offensive formation. And so those two guys, Clark and Wansor, they flip. And as they're finishing their realignment, the ball is snapped. And so now you've got these guys flipped. You're going to run to the left side, so you're running against a strong safety and not a linebacker. And so that's one reason they get this sort of bubble is because Clark's not really aligned when the ball is snapped. The other reason is the defensive tackle slants to the inside. And I doubt that they knew this was going to come. But pre-snap, he's aligned on the left shoulder of Joe Tooney. As the motion comes, he sort of slides head up to Tooney, and then he cuts inside, slants basically to the opposite A-gap. So that means Ted Karras, the center, all he has to do is take his first step out to the left and then seal him off. So that's the first block. That allows Joe Tooney now to get right onto the second level to block a strong safety. And the other critical block is Newhouse. Again, a guy we've been deriding a bit, but he just drives his guy downfield. The first contact on James White, who takes his handoff, is by Earl Thomas, seven yards downfield. Do you feel better? Probably not. But in the search for the New England offensive identity, I think we might have found it in these three plays. Play action, getting the ball out quickly, spreading teams up with tempo, and then running at weaknesses in the defense when you get on them and start wearing them down. And that probably sounds a lot like where the Patriots have been for many years. And maybe it's time to go back to that again. We've thought in a sense of this season being perhaps a return to the start. Winning with defense and a ball control sort of passing game, right? Sort of the start of the Brady-Belichick era. Maybe it's not all the way back, but more towards the, you know, 04 type season, 
when that's what you wanted to do offensively, use tempo. Some of the other years, 10, 12, the Gronk and Hernandez years when you would use tempo, that might be what they have to do. Or it could be completely wrong. That's happened before too. But I hope I tried to make you feel better. I mean, I tried to make you feel better. I hope I did. Not so sure I did. Up next, quality time with you, the listener, on episode 37 of The Sco Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 37 of The Sco Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you as always by the great folks at SB Nation. And it's time for quality time. And as I said, I'm going to spend it today with you, the listener, because I've got some questions to answer and I got a couple that I'm really excited about. So we'll dive right in. We'll kick it off with our great friend, John Limarakis from The Sco Show Slack channel. And first up, how's the victory lap with Lamar feel? Bittersweet? And what he's referencing is the fact that Lamar Jackson had played really well Sunday night. He's played really well this season. As John points out, you know, the next sort of follow-up he has to that is how surprised are you that Lamar is the best quarterback so far from that class? And the Lamar Jackson sort of question and thinking about him sort of conceptually and then looking back as many are this week to how he was viewed in the draft class, it's a fascinating thing to unpack because we had Bill Polian this week sort of come out and say, look, I was viewing him through the old school lens of quarterback evaluation, and I was wrong. And I was wrong to say that he should have been a wide receiver. And many, myself included, pounded away at Polian and others with that philosophy during the 2017 draft class, you know, 2017 into 2018. And I dug up a tweet thread that I put together back in 2017 during his final season with resources on myself and others, putting together content, articles, podcasts, video clips, whatever, highlighting just how good a quarterback he was in college. And was he perfect? Was he refined or anything like that? Absolutely not. These guys rarely are. But his success this year isn't really surprising when you look at the landing spot. And it's one of the things that I talk so often and others do as well about Quarterback evaluation is, look, we can break these guys down until we're blue in the face, and believe me, we do. But ultimately, what we say doesn't matter at all. We're all just kind of wasting our time because whether they work out or not depends in almost complete part on where they end up. And I was on the radio. I made my triumphant return to Sportsnet 650. Now in their drive time hour, so it's going to be 9 p.m. Wednesdays um, on the East Coast, you know, 6 p.m. out west, where I'm on the air in Vancouver. I made my return with Andrew Walker and Sadir Shaw. Good to be back with them last night. And we were talking about that 2018 class, and I raised this question. Would Lamar Jackson be as successful right now if he had been drafted by Arizona? And he was in Josh Rosen's shoes? He might still be good. I don't think we'd be talking about him as an MVP right now. 
because the landing spot is so critical. And again, to his credit, Collinsworth highlighted it Sunday night. The Ravens went all in on this and basically said, look, we're going to play to his strengths. And this is what people like myself and others have been craving to see from offenses and offensive coordinators for years. Stop trying to fit square pegs into round holes. If you've got a quarterback that does X, Y, and Z, don't ask him to run A, B, and C. Run X, Y, and Z. I mentioned Pro Football Weekly, and the work that I do over there is breaking down and discussing Mitchell Trubisky week in and week out. And this week, I made a reference to a bit of a bit quick lesson from a book that I'm reading. A book that I'm reading right now, if you know me, you know I'm a history nerd. I am reading Sailing True North by Admiral James Stavridis, who is a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. The guy's, you know, commanded destroyers, carrier groups, four-star admiral in the United States Navy. And he's got this tremendous book that's out right now. I'm working my way through it. And he talks about 10 different admirals through history and lessons on leadership. And in sort of a view into my mind and how my mind works, when I'm reading stuff like this, the football mind is never turned off. And so I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago over from Matt Waldman's site when he was talking about how young leaders need to be able and free to make mistakes is the only way they're going to learn. And I analogize that to how Sean McVay sort of handholds Jared Goff is that sort of stunt in his development. And in a piece this week about Trubisky, I highlighted another snippet from that book. And it's from a United States admiral who basically said, the key to great ship handling is to never be in a situation that requires great ship handling. And the argument that I made with Trubisky is that's how Nagy needs to view it. If you want him to be a good quarterback, an effective quarterback, don't put him in situations that require him to be an effective quarterback because he's not going to get there. You look at some of the mistakes he's making, there's stuff he was doing at UNC. And so play to his strengths. Don't ask him to be a quarterback if he can't do quarterback things like read progressions and things like that. Just let him play. Roll him out, get him out of the pocket, let him run. This Mitchell Trubisky experiment seems to be ending poorly, so why not just try it? So things aren't going well. And people seem to like the piece. Including Admiral Stravitas himself, who sent a very nice email about it. And it's not every day you get an email from the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. And so I didn't know that would be a bucket list item for me, but it is, it was, and it's now checked off, which that was kind of cool. Wasn't getting emails like that when I was a lawyer. All those people who doubted me. But the main point is this. Baltimore is playing to what Lamar does well. And one of the things he does well is make you run no matter what you do as a defense. I got a piece going up at PFW about Lamar against Balt, about him against New England. And the third and five throw on the very next drive of this game we just got talking about after you know New England got back into this game, made it a four-point game again, but then Baltimore goes right down the field and scored. That third and five completion, we got a chance to go three and out. They went double spy. Collins and Jonathan Jones spy Lamar Jackson. They're terrified of him running. They bring five, so do the math. They go zero bets behind it. They're daring Lamar Jackson to make a throw, and he does. 
And so his growth has been great. He's playing at an extremely high level. And he makes you run no matter what you do. That's why he's been so much fun to watch. John also asks, do you think other teams have the ability to attack them the same way Baltimore did? And if so, what schematic changes do you think they will make? And make? And long answer short, no. I think you look at their schedule. I don't think any of the teams left that they're going to play have the ability to attack them the same way Baltimore does. The closest might be Dallas. Dallas is willing to use Dak Prescott at times as a runner. They will do some zone read stuff with him. They will do some QB power stuff with him. And so Baltimore is close. But part of the thing that made Baltimore, I mean, Dallas is close, but part of the thing that made Baltimore tough to defend was the multiple tight end looks they have. And Witten, nice to see him come back. Blake Jarwin's interesting, but I'm not as worried about their tight ends as I it was and now continue to be about Baltimore's. And so I, I think Baltimore is a rare breed. You know, and sort of to that point, I got a question on Twitter from Ron Burgundy at Burgundy underscore VON. What do the Pats do about this run D? I think you write this off. Baltimore is a different beast. You take the lessons from it. Again, when you're going to see teams try to emulate it, so you will probably have to at times go light, go athletic against stuff like this. You know, what made it also difficult is Baltimore's offensive line is able to bully people a bit. So it's a, it's just a tough team to play. I don't think you have to like wildly adjust. I think you probably have to get a little bit lighter, a little bit more athletic like they did sort of in the second half and attack it that way because they went heavy. They were out there at times with a 3-5 look, five linebackers on the field at the same time, and they couldn't stop the run because the offensive linemen had the ability to get to angles and the guys they were blocking were where they expected them to be. It's different when you're trying to get it against defensive backs because they're going to be a little bit faster and they'll have angles that offensive linemen can't win. And so I think they'll have to go a little bit lighter as well as a result if they see more stuff like this. But I'm not... Overly concerned about it. Ian McDonald. At Ian C. McDonald on Twitter. The man with the chips. You predicted accurately that the Ravens offense might slow down a bit after their scripted plays. Is it just a matter of more crisp execution? Assuming they dedicate more time to those plays? Do certain offensive styles benefit more from scripted calls? And what Ian's referring to there is after the quick Baltimore start, I said in the Scotia Slack channel that once they get off script, perhaps their offense is going to slow down a bit. And that turned out to be true. And we often see this sometimes. And there are people that, uh, Eric Eager, for example, a pro football focus, he's got a continual plot each week of offensive EPA on this first first 15 plays versus the rest of the game. And you can see which teams are very effective in their scripts. Green Bay, I believe, is one of them. Patriots have been pretty successful on their scripts. And so the thought that I had was, look, once they start into the main flow of the game, we'll see what kind of game they're going to call, what kind of stuff Roman's going to do and things like that. And they did slow down a bit. And for a while, I thought I was going to give myself the take of the game in the post-game show. But that didn't come to fruition. But mainly, Ian, it is a matter of execution. You do dedicate a ton of time to those plays. And I can tell you as a quarterback, when I knew going in, these are the first 15 plays I'm going to run. 
I can't tell you how many times I ran through those plays mentally, those so-called mental reps, in the build-up to a game. Because you just know exactly what you're going to get, and you're pretty much ready for anything. And then you got to execute them, which I didn't do so well, which is why I'm here talking to you and not elsewhere. But it, it's that. It's that ability to sort of have that crisp execution. You dedicate more time to them. And in terms of sort of offenses that benefit more or less, I don't really think there's an offense that doesn't benefit from it. Because, again, it's all that matter of repetition and execution. And especially when in this day and age you're talking about how you don't get a ton of time to practice, knowing what you're going to do is a huge boost. Finally, let's close out this show, episode 37 of the Sco Show, with a question right up my alley. And no, it's not about Toto. From Dylan, at Dylan M. Rod. When evaluating a quarterback, what is the one thing or list of very important things that determines them starter-capable? Mechanics, processing, etc. And it's a fantastic question. And it's one that I've been wrestling with over the past couple of weeks because we're always in draft season, right? And look, we've got the battle for QB1 this weekend. Joe and Tua. And so people have been thinking about the quarterback evaluation. And when you're seeing guys like Lamar have success, guys like Trubisky start to struggle, and you're seeing how things shake out, you start to wonder if we've been doing it the right way or the wrong way. And... Every draft cycle, there are things that we hype up. For example, Josh Rosen, when he was QB1 for me, the reason why he was QB1 was the mental side. I said he was pro-ready, read defenses, and all that great leverage stuff, and processing speed, and breaking down coverages. And then we find out this year that he had never identified a Mike linebacker before. We don't know anything. And so... I've started to come to the idea, and I wrote about this this week in a piece about Justin Herbert over at Matt Waldman's site, that there are, yes, there are non-negotiables that matter, and to what extent they matter more than others, we can quibble about. But process and speed is certainly one of them, and it shows up in a couple of different ways, but I think we need to sort of rethink how we view process and speed. It's not so much the ability to break down what is cover three versus cover six versus cover four versus whatever, because that's hard to do. How do I know that? It's hard to do with the benefit of Twitter, of playbooks, and of slow motion replay. Every week, without fail, there is a clip posted on the Twitter timeline or in group chats or elsewhere of a coverage scheme with people wondering, what is this? And then 400 people reply and you get 400 different answers. And so if we can't figure it out sitting here on our couches... How's a quarterback going to figure it out? So does it even matter? Is kind of the point where the conclusion that I'm starting to come to. Because what might matter more is, I don't care if it's cover three, cover six, cover seven, Rip, Liz, Mabel, Buzz, doesn't matter. Are you finding an opening guy and are you able to exploit the leverage that you see? That's what might matter more. Anticipation, that matters. Because if you're making anticipation throws as a college kid, you're going to do it in the pros. What do we always say about if the wide receiver sees you throw the ball? It's too late. you got to make anticipation throws. It was something that was a work in progress for Baker. And this season, part of his struggle is he's getting the ball out late. 
He's looking like more of a see-it-throw-it guy. And so that matters. Pocket presence matters. Mechanics, this came up recently on the timeline. People have been wondering in the past couple of weeks, should we look at baseball backgrounds? Because you look at Russell Wilson, you look at Mahomes, you look at Kyler Murray. Baseball backgrounds. The ability to make throws off of platform. And so I, during the Mahomes cycle, started saying this. Mechanics don't matter until they matter. I don't care if it looks perfect when you throw the ball as long as it gets, as long as it gets to where it needs to be, what it needs to be there. And if you do it behind your back, between your legs, around your head, doesn't matter. Now, if you start missing throws as a result of your mechanics, then they matter. And so that's how I view mechanics. But the things that I think matter, processing speed and reading leverage now more than processing speed and deciphering defenses, anticipation, pocket presence, and yes, competitive toughness, that doesn't go away. But those are the things I think matter. You put that in a nice little package, you're going to find somebody that can be a starting quarterback in the NFL. Or it could be completely wrong. I have no idea. Frankly, I have no idea what I'm talking about, ever. I don't know why you people listen to this show. But you do. And I love each and every one of you. But friends, that will do it for today. I will be back Saturday for Pat's Pulpit Radio Rewind. Again, it'll be a light week because it's bye week time. But until next time, friends, key, please keep on blessing that. Patriots reign down in Foxborough.